Hey, DER Task Force, this is Duncan. Today we're excited to bring you an episode on FERC Order 2222. You've all probably heard of, thought about, and read different takes on this order, so we thought it would be fun to explore the topic in a pretty big way, taking it as an opportunity to imagine what the future of DER participation in the power system could end up looking like. As is often the case, this episode was inspired by a previous DER Task Force virtual meetup. A few months ago, we were privileged to be joined by Peter Cabin, who works on distributed energy policy at Centrica. He helped our community understand what the order really means, so that now we can go a bit beyond that. Enjoy the episode, and as usual, we'll kick it off with a quote. DERs can hide in plain sight in our homes, businesses, and communities across the nation. But their power is mighty. How much so? Well, some studies have projected that the United States will see 65 gigawatts of DER capacity come online over the next four years, while others have even projected upwards of exceeding 380 gigawatts by 2025. While these estimates and analytical frameworks vary, there's no doubt that investments in these advanced technologies will only accelerate in the years to come, continuing the seismic shifts we're seeing in our energy landscape. Today's order is designed to capitalize on those shifts, allowing us to meet the moment and develop the grid of the future. Who do you think that was? Is that the the FERC commissioner? Yeah, former FERC commissioner. Yeah, Neil Chatterjee. Didn't he also say, like, I am the most important person to come to climate tech in the past decade or something? (laughs) Something about energy transition. I think it was a little, (laughs) he, he was just having fun. I thought that was great, though. I like that. <laughs> Everyone was like, yeah, Neil, about the, the order. And then right after that, we're like, okay, pump the brakes, man. <laughs> yeah. You did good on one thing. That doesn't mean you got to claim it all. <laughs> Whatever, man. We need more Kanye energy in our space. Just like... <laughs> no, I love it. It's fun. It, yeah. It's great. Okay. Uh, so obviously, today we're talking about FERC 2222, a.k.a. FERC Quad Deuce. And... <laughs> You know, this is the landmark ruling or supposed landmark ruling that is going to open up energy markets to DER participation. So historically, DER's value has really only uh, come from saving customers money on their bills. And this idea that all these DERs and aggregations could actually participate in wholesale markets, just like a big generation plant could, is pretty new. Certain regions have adopted it in piecemeal prior to this. Others are more advanced than some. This FERC order really says nationally, this has to happen. So the way we wanted to unpack this today was really thinking about PURPA as a starting point, right? PURPA was kind of the last landmark order that uh, you know opened up energy markets to new types of competition enabled by new technology. And what we found is purpose impact really wasn't realized for you know another 10 years or so after that. So we thought it would be interesting to think about what does the grid need to look like 10 years from today? A grid that is way more inclusive of DER participation, that values these things properly. What does that look like? We'll each say our vision for that. And then we'll sort of backtrack and uh, reconstruct whether FERC 2222 gets us there. And so I think with that, the first DER task force member is going to give their 10-year vision for the DER marketplace. Who wants to go, James or Colleen? Colleen, you seem pretty confident coming into the episode that that you had a pretty good plan. So why don't you go first? Oh my gosh. We're also going to do like a- The pressure. Like during graduation, like no one claps until the end. So (laughs) just, just put it out there. 
we're not going to react. We're all going to go in succession and then we're going to break it down. I feel like I'm bearing my soul right now. Um, I started my foundational premise with thinking like if we're getting to a 100% renewable grid in 10 years, which we need to do to fight. And by, by renewable, I mean carbon neutral. We're not going to get into the nuclear debate today. But I don't think that wholesale markets are going to work anymore because your marginal rate of like participation just isn't there when you don't have fossil generation. And so I kind of think we need to just like rethink the entire structure <laughs> of our wholesale markets, uh, not just how DERs participate, but what I think is really great about that is it gives us the capability to integrate DERs fully so that they can participate equally. And on top of that, I also think that as we have this proliferation of really cheap energy, we should have universal basic energy Ooh, at a wow. base level. And that's, we're going to, I'm going to get into this more later. This is a, but freedom. I'm not supposed to react, but this is <laughs> a spicy take. Yeah. Colleen Yang over here. Are we going back to <laughs> too cheap to meter or what? <laughs> We're not going back to that. It's not going to be free for everyone. I'm not saying like everyone gets free en energy, but I think there's a way to like, we'll talk about some of the equity concerns I have later. And I think there's like a way to solve some of that. Okay. At risk of going too far down the rabbit hole, James, you're up next. So I think there's two sort of novel things going on right now. One is we have energy storage. We can store power for the first time. You know, we don't have to do this just in time system as Duncan calls it. And we have bi-directional nodes. We used to have generation in wholesale markets and kind of consumption in retail markets for the most part. But now there's people sell into the grid with solar. They also buy at different times. So those are kind of the two macro changes that we need to contend with. So I picture this kind of like distributed two-way network, which we've talked a lot about. So I picture it as like one one big market. Like I don't think there's a meaningful distinction between the distribution infrastructure and wholesale. So people talk about like DSO, distributed system operator, ISO, independent system operator, like you separate wholesale and distribution. I think it kind of just becomes one big bi-directional market. And the two components of that, all we need to do is settling to the meter, <laughs> open up the meter so we actually have like the real-time data and unbundle distribution and wholesale benefits as Vitor does, but it's still done through the utility. So meaning when you put solar on a roof, you give it a credit for the distribution or transmission benefits it provides, then you treat it as a wholesale power plant from there. So there's like LBMP in capacity. I think the result of this is we don't need demand response. We don't need telemetry on individual devices. I think you can do it all through the meter. If you're exposing all the meters to wholesale markets, you're doing that segmentation. I, I think all of that information is captured just through the meter. So you don't need to know that it's like a battery or a nest or whatever that's you know adjusting load behind the meter. It's just that meter is going to import or it's going to export. Those two things are valued the same because it's exposed to the LBMP and capacity markets. I think aggregation is fine within that. So you can aggregate meters. You know, maybe eventually we should just get to, you don't need this hundred kilowatt minimum, which is what aggregation usually is saying like New York ISO, you could go down to one kilowatt, whatever you want, all devices, but we can start with aggregation. That's fine. And then I'm going to throw in a kicker, which is it has to be an energy only market 
because two reasons. One, Colleen, I agree with you. Marginal cost bidding doesn't make sense when you have assets that don't have marginal cost of operation. So you need like dynamic bidding, like kind of like the stock market works, I guess. And when you have performance penalties for non-participation of capacity resources, like you do in capacity markets, it's really hard to have individuals through the smart thermostat or EV or whatever it is, participate in a capacity market. So in an energy-only market, you just pay them for performance, whereas in capacity markets, you have to penalize non-performance. And I think the energy-only leading with the carrot, not the whip, works better for individual resources. So that was maybe too long, but that's, 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 I think the two things we need to do and like the result of all that, I guess. Is it fair to say, in addition to needing an energy only market implied in your vision also is every market needs retail choice? Yeah. Cause you're, you're also separating distribution from wholesale. So utilities can't be the only sort of way you, that you access wholesale markets. Yeah. So I guess I'll just, I'll just summarize you unbundle distribution sort of transmitting power and actual supply like LBMP and capacity. You compensate those two things differently. You settle to the meter and you do energy only markets. Amazing. Um, Duncan. Okay. So mine, mine has some similarities with that. Mine's three things. And this is purely through the lens of in 10 years, you know, what is a market construct that works really well for DERs? I think the first thing is you have to give DERs access to short run marginal wholesale markets, uh, really not unlike we're talking about with 2222. So, you know, make sure that whatever type of markets exist in a given ISO, whether it's energy, capacity, ancillary services, let DERs bid into that or somehow access that. Two, I think you have to give DERs exposure to long run costs. So those are the costs associated with needing to build more distribution and transmission in the future or you know more uh, capacity reserves or whatever it might be the sort of the future costs that are helped avoid by installing DERs and then the third thing is i think you need to align rate design and programs like demand response so whether that's you just have one thing or you have both of them but they have the same value and same mechanisms sort of operating within them I think you need these things aligned so that you don't have these issues where, you know, certain DERs are always going to sort of be a behind the meter rate design type thing where others are always going to be this front of the meter thing. And there, there's all these problems that arise when you can't just treat everything the same. So in a lot of ways, I think there's some similarities with what James is proposing there. I think mine are just kind of a, a little more high level. I guess a good place to start would be like, do we disagree at all on the physical nature of the grid, right? Like, you know, and kind of the way I described it, like how it works, like fundamentally, I guess, you know, it being bi-directional because, you know, do you, do you picture it as like this one big grid? Do you think there's this big divide between distribution and transmission infrastructure? Do you think we should treat these things separately? Yeah. So I think I, on the physical side, agree that it needs to be treated as an entire system and not as like a distribution system and a transmission system only. I'm not sure that I agree that it's necessary to have that be one entity. It is necessary to have like appropriate data sharing, right? So if you look at like Europe right now with the DSO, TSO model, like they have issues 
where like the TSO calls for a resource, but then there's a congestion on the distribution grid and the DSO then is like, stop, don't provide that resource. And so that coordination, obviously you could have one entity and that would be, the coordination would be there, but you'd still need to like counteract and like work through what resources are providing to transmission versus distribution. So there will be like competing things. So that that problem is there kind of either way. It's just a question of whether you have to coordinate across two organizations or not to solve it. Right. And this kind of gets into what Duncan was saying about like aligning rate design and mm -hmm. demand response. And I think that's what I'm getting at in that one of my biggest frustrations with VDER is in the kind of how DERs are compensated, as we've discussed, like there's this LBMP component and capacity component, but it's actually just a shadow settlement of the wholesale market. Like it's actually all being financially settled via the utility, like a power desk, it can't actually like take that physical obligation and be compensated in that way, which I don't think makes any sense because if by having this like DSO, ISO or TSO divide, like you said, Colleen, what you're actually doing is separating the physical from the financial. Everything physically is happening on the grid where you're just matching supply and demand on this big system, right? But like having this so-called DSO that everyone's been sort of enamored with doing the financial settlement, it it separates it from the wholesale market. It's just going to create all these weird misalignments to Duncan's point where you have to do like all these weird like, oh, you can't double dip. You can do this program, but not that program. I'm like, there's just energy and capacity on a grid so you open up that meter to that and, you know, as I said in a prior episode, you, you get freaky with it because like <laughs> all that, all, like those are the two fundamental, like that's the cornerstone of what's actually happening physically. And I think you can really simply reflect that financially by just treating the whole thing as a wholesale market and like not giving the utility this weird intermediate like power in a way. You have to just separate them from that completely. Yeah. So James, what you're describing is basically look, it's all one grid. There's just, we're in, in, integrating the distribution grid into the sort of larger ISO operation just means more nodes and we should just treat them that way. Right. Like you have sources and sinks, you have the need to have like the pipes wide enough, like to actually flow enough power for like peak days or whatever. So that's like the physical system. And then you have like how much energy or water is like flowing through those pipes, right? So it's like you pay for transport and you pay for the energy and they're, it's like one big market and it's bi-directional. So when users are exporting, it's the same as if they're, they're importing, that's compensated the, the same or like valued the same way at that LBMP rate or whatever. So mm -hmm. I just don't see anything fundamentally different. Obviously they're like different voltages and stuff, but that's not like a, you know, first principles difference, I guess, between like the transmission network and the distribution network. So that kind of fleshes out my perspective, I guess. I want to go back to Colleen's and like we kind of glossed over the, the UVE universal basic energy. So like, Maybe in the context of what I proposed, which is maybe doesn't shock anyone that that's kind of what I came out with. But can you like position it against what I proposed, basically? Can I just say quickly, like before universal basic energy, like I do think there was one thing both of you said that was more different than you thought, right? Colleen mentioned this idea of like, I don't think wholesale energy markets work when there's really like no marginal price anymore. 
And James, you seem to agree with that. But like, I don't think she actually meant what you meant. I think we both agree the marginal cost of operation being zero is a problem. I'm not sure I understand how energy only pricing gets us there since the energy market is normally what's bid in at marginal costs. You just pick your price. Like I'll sell it for 80 bucks a megawatt hour. But who's picking that price? I, I don't think we can just say like people start picking prices because right now everyone gets paid on whatever the highest price is. And so renewables just get paid based on fossil Gas. fuel marginal yeah. costs. Right, the bid stack. So I think it's like a pretty big undertaking for us to suddenly be like, people are going to start coming up with prices. And then that sort of leads to questions to me of like artificial pricing constraints. Like if people are just coming up with numbers and everyone's getting paid that number, like right, the- Everyone gets energy or like no one does basically, which is the difference between, mm -hmm. like that's why what I propose may not work. Right, like if all of the solar is on, who decides- what solar plants we're using and which ones we're not using and how do we decide the price? And is it really just people being like, I'll do it for a dollar versus someone being like, you know what, it's not worth it for me unless I do $40 because otherwise I'm not going to get recoup the cost of my plant. But at the same time, then you're never getting used because someone's going to come in for a lower price. Right. Well, yeah, it'll, it'll still be the case that if you own a solar or wind plant, you'll take whatever the hell the price is, unless it's negative, at which point you'll just shut down, right? So it's really just in cases where demand outstrips variable renewables and it's time for storage to discharge that a price gets created, right? Because now the price has to rise sufficiently for the storage to want to bid. And I right. think that actually gets really hard because plants are typically obligated to bid at their marginal cost, which for storage would mean like the price at which you charged previously, which might be zero. <laughs> so like there still has to like incorporate that opportunity cost thing of like once storage discharges, it can't discharge the next second when prices might be higher. So I, I do think there's like some fundamental challenges with an energy only market in a very high penetration VRE uh, setting because like what creates prices at that point? Yeah, you could totally be right there. This is where Adam uh, James says like a purely capacity market. I sort of am down. It gets into the same thing in a way where like, you know, you pay something to exist, but then how do you incentivize it to like turn on? Yeah. Do we go to a capacity only market? I'm not an economist. So yeah, well, there you go. Or UBE. It's sort of related. I'm going to get like a little bit on a soapbox for a second. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, in the clean energy space, we're all like, we need social justice. We need environmental justice. We need clean energy to combat climate change. We need all of these things. Also, markets are amazing. Everyone should be paying exactly what they're using. Let's break this down so that everything's super optimized and you're paying for exactly your distribution price and like and your transmission price. And that just to me leads to a lot of leads back to a lot of equity questions that I don't feel like I fully always see the full circle of, right? If you're like live in a rural town and like you were like that decision wasn't yours, um, but you have a real line transmission line. Like, are you suddenly paying a crazy amount of energy? Like the energy grid was very much like, was very much constructed as a socialized network in the sort of new deal era. And so to me, the concept of universal basic energy would be like some amount of energy that at least residential, unclear if commercial deserves to be part of this or not, gets as sort of like a basic minimum that would generally cover expected heating, cooling, 
refrigeration, sort of like average customer costs of that. With the idea being that like, there are things that are sort of fundamental. And then if you use above that, you could like charge more, right? Like your price would be higher. You'd sort of be like socializing that cost in, right? You'd be baking that into like the energy usage cost, but maybe they wouldn't actually have to be higher because all our marginal cost of energy is going to be zero. So maybe it doesn't matter. (laughs) To me, as we build out this concept and we try to say like, you should be paying for what you're using, when you're using it and how you're using it. If you have that construct, you need to also create the construct of like, now just because you don't have the resources, you can't afford to keep your home at a comfortable temperature when it's like negative 20 outside and you live in the Midwest. Yeah, no, I I hear your point. Yeah, it's like, there's this tension between the super optimized, transparent market fundamentals grid and the one we built (laughs) that people's lives now kind of are like, organized around and like if you kind of change the rules in a big way like you do sort of pull out the rug from a lot of people and i think what this is like good at is there's a lot of right heating energy assistance programs that exist which are really wonderful but they take a lot of like you know eligibility validation they're a separate source right so again it's like sort of something that's separate from the regular system and like administratively you're spending you know, time and resources, educating people about it, learning about it, helping this. And sort of as you get renewable energy, like, can we not just provide this to everyone and sort of like reduce that need and create like a more equitable system as we're like trying to redesign the grid? You should just be like a nuke bro now, like, which I have no problem with. I'd, I'd, I'd love if you, if you just pivoted and leaned into that, like what you've described sounds to me a lot like okay just like build out a bunch of power plants with like really dependable load and like provide that energy at some baseline cost to people and like i'm not sure i don't know how the no offense like how the heck for a quarter 22 22 gets us to like ube like there's like there's like something else being inserted there which is like you know, a na- nationalized like nuclear spending. I feel like it just it would make more sense to use nuclear than like renewables in that case, I think. I kind of see where this comes from though, right? Because like this gets back to a conversation we had previously about like averaging of rates and stuff. Where like if you're going to unlock like grid edge value, then you have to be able to incentivize build of grid edge assets where they matter, which means all the different points along the grid edge have to be valued differently, right? So therefore, everybody's energy has to cost different amounts. And then the equity concern comes from that, right? Which is if we're going to de-average rates, if you know your impact on the grid is your responsibility and you can go get DERs to fix that, it creates this, this concern about, well, like when my mom <laughs> you know, moved to this place, like that wasn't really part of the social contract. So like, I I think that's why it's relevant uh, because like really to make DERs happen, we kind of simultaneously have to be down with everything being different across the edge of the grid and therefore everyone being exposed to different costs. And perhaps that needs to be dealt with in some other way that's not averaging of rates, but outside of the rate. Or the counter argument would be someone saying like, no, just like VDER, like DERs just like exist in front of the meter or like not on the bill. And like, that's how you deal with it. Like keep billing people the same way you do now, but then DERs kind of like sit on top of it in some kind of program. Okay, so if you guys are okay with it, I'd love to move on to a related thing that 
is I think like connects all of our proposals. Yes. So, you know, we just talked about basically like short run costs, just like how do we divvy up the marginal cost of producing power temporally, locationally, are there equity concerns there? You know, what about long run costs, right? You know, when you install a DER, not only does it contribute to the market in that moment, but it reduces the need for more build of the grid later, potentially, if done right. I don't know, like BQDM is one example of that. In a programmatic sense, you could also maybe achieve that through rate design. That was a big part of my thing. Do we think generally that's like a necessary part of a functioning DER's market? That like somehow, I mean, Vita attempts to do this, right? Somehow you're getting credit for the fact that like taking load off a congested node a like predictably every day congested node like isn't just like you get the energy price that day it's also we don't have to do a substation upgrade and there's some value there that you should be compensated for i mean that's interesting i guess you know almost reframing like my proposal uh you know a der is a wholesale plant like just expose it to the lbmp and capacity price that's short run costs but I said unbundling it from distribution, like compensating it for kind of locationally on what feeder it's being put, how it's affecting demand in that area is kind of fits in with like a long run cost. Yeah. Like it's almost yeah. just like transmission and distribution infrastructure <laughs> versus like day-to-day market operation, right? And I think those are two separate things. So it's clear when you put a battery behind the meter if that building's peak demand was one and a half megawatts and you put a battery there, now uh, that's a megawatt. Now it's only 500 kilowatts, right? But what if you size the battery to like two megawatts or there's solar so it like can also net export? Does that mean like its demand charges just go away or does it actually, does it get a net credit or do you need to actually tax it for exporting? You know what I mean? Like when a node becomes bidirectional, how do you deal with that long run cost? Like, I don't, I don't know the answer. So I, I feel like that's almost the place to start in answering like in a DER's world, how you deal with your long run costs. Totally. And I think like combined with just like take that and add like an additional thing, James, I think you were kind of getting at, which is optimization of those loads, right? Right now, the way a lot of non-wires alternatives work is sort of like, okay, you have this if needed, right? During like this sort of peak hour time, like you can, pro- like you're sort of providing this amount of demand reduction. And it's kind of a known amount. But I think with a lot of DERs and like optimization, we don't really know what that known amount is right now, right? Like you put in a bunch of heat pumps, like how much are you actually reducing? Or you're installing a bunch of EV chargers, like, and you plan on doing managed charging, but do you really know what your operations are going to look like? And what are you sort of committing to? And how do we trust those commitments? And obviously over time, you can collect that data. So this maybe becomes a moot point in five, six years. But I think it's really interesting when you have things that are so dynamic to your point of like, are you exporting one month and then the next month you're importing and how does that average out and how do you think about that sort of upfront? When I think Duncan, your question around kind of like the capacity is sort of thinking about more of like an upfront payment. Whatever it might be, it's basically just like, yeah, if I remove a bunch of load from the system, like that's less stuff that has to be built over the next 10, 20 years, less grid, you know? I mean, I think to James's point, like you could achieve that through like if, if demand charges are kind of what represent your cost to the distribution infrastructure, 
well then reducing them should account for that and even if you're exporting demand uh you should get money for that then right and maybe there's more elegant ways of doing that some kind of like coincident demand charge based on the local distribution peak or there's the veter type approach which is kind of like we're gonna kind of abstract this into like a rate you get because like we did some math and kind of like here's what it's worth which is another way but i'll pull this back to for 2222 like in some ways it's landmark but in some ways it's ignoring the thing that is most essential about distributed energy which is it is behind the distribution grid right like right. it actually like that is very unique relative to any other generator on the grid and we're pretend we're not sorry not pretending too salty uh we're saying like the landmark thing that we're doing for distributed energy is helping it act like everything else <laughs> which is like well right. that's good that's the first step we need to do that we haven't done that but like also it's not it helps us avoid grid <laughs> not right. of course not go off the grid or anything but i mean like that so to me like that's the biggest part of this that we're still missing in 10 years if 2222 is all we get no sort of like unified means by which distributed energy owners whether they're the end users or folks like me or whatever can get credit for the fact that like they're building this the network as well as the energy that's uh super interesting and like actually kind of ties into what i was gonna try and articulate next if you say franchise rights, I'm just hanging up. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's not a bad point. Uh, <laughs> no, so uh, it's kind of like 2222 feels like we're framing this entirely new system from like the old systems framework, right? Or like mindset. And it just doesn't, it, it gets like halfway there, but there's something fundamentally different happening and it's trying to like fit a round peg into a square hole or, or or just like it's not crediting how actually like what is actually mon monumental about DERs like you said Duncan and it comes back I think to resilience right and I, I think when when we talk about like we talked about in the electrification episode about the difference between like resilience and efficiency and how resilience in an electrified grid becomes way more important locally because you need like your charging station and your heat to stay on and stuff for transportation. Jed actually talks about this, about having like different tiers of payment to the grid. Like what the grid is actually providing us is reliability, but we don't actually pay for it in that manner. Like everyone just kind of gets the same 98% uptime or whatever. And if you're a facility that needs resilience, you just have to pay more for like a generator, right? But you still pay the same rate to like the bulk grid for your 98% uptime. So Duncan, like what makes building supply behind the distribution grid so sort of monumental in a way is like the resiliency aspect to it, right? And how do you value that properly? Co-locating supply and demand essentially which is a uh, that's pointing at like resiliency right so the one way you could look at it is like what do generators pay for interconnection i'd imagine right like when they want to hook into the grid and they're a one gigawatt plant they have to pay for like one gigawatt infrastructure to like export that power so demand charges for behind the meter assets maybe isn't the right framing like they may have to pay the grid to actually export 
what you're getting at, I think, Duncan, like I'm trying to say in this roundabout way is like actually this question of resilience and how, how do you value resilience? And that's what's fundamentally different about DERs than like this old kind of just in time, everyone gets the same uptime bulk grid power system that we built in the past mm-hmm. by like building load and supply next to each other. You have to value that differently. <laughs> than just saying like, oh, you can bid it in for demand response. Right. And I think resilient, I mean, I think resilience is a huge component of it. And then I think there's also this like distribution grid infrastructure deferral. That's also a huge component of it that isn't, again, James, I think exactly to your point, isn't currently built into wholesale markets because generally wholesale markets can't do anything with distribution grid deferrals, right? Like, and I don't really know how you would value that in a wholesale market in general, but let's say you're, a large CNI factory, I don't know, your your factory somewhere. And in one location, you're like pretty remote. And so you want to install DERs because you want resilience. And that's really important to you in case the system goes down. And that provides value to you. And like maybe some ancillary value if there's like someone around you who you could share with, but we're not going to go into franchise rights quite yet. <laughs> and then, but then let's say you're that same factory, but you're like located in a city. And by you building that DER, you actually like defer a substation being updated because now you can supply into the grid locally and when there's maybe congestion at that substation. And so then you're not just providing resilience to yourself, you're also providing a local grid benefit, even like in the current construct. And so mm-hmm. I think those are the two things that are missing, right? Sort of specifically from the current construct of for 2222 and how we allow it to bid in because you're not going to get the either of those values nothing that happens within the utilities distribution territory is going to like be valued by yeah 2222 and if we go back to like the veter world like there is a sort of payment for those congested areas for ders mm-hmm. but i think james to your point what's not in veter is this sort of idea of resilience right and i know we had our like resiliency credit that we talked about before right so that's still, I think that's still missing in a lot of the like general discussion on it. So I know I didn't tie resilience into this in a satisfactory way, but I, I'm, I'm going to try and work up to it. But Colleen, you mentioned um, how it works like uh, at the wholesale level. So I think a really interesting case study is actually the Kres lines in Texas. Basically, they're a set of lined like credited renewable energy zones or something. So they built all these lines like kind of up into the near the panhandle in Texas and out into West Texas to like bring renewable supply down into Houston and Dallas and stuff essentially. So they ran kind of like a macro grid study and the the cost of the transmission lines were like $7 billion. And they, they rolled those into what are called four CP rates in Texas for coincident peaks. It's not a capacity market. It's actually to pay for the, the infrastructure, which is like an interesting mm-hmm. distinction how Texas works. So it's actually only for like accounts larger than 700 KW and your four coincident peaks, you get assigned a tag and then you pay into like this pool of capital. You're paying it down for actually the, the infrastructure projects, not the, yeah, yeah. yeah. And the reason they did it is because they realized like we can build really, really cheap supply out in West Texas that's going to make like all the wholesale market prices come down, right? So effectively what you're doing in running that analysis is you have like the supply component and the transmission component, right? And and DERS inherently are both. 
So in talking about like, oh, it's just one big two-way network now, like when you just build solar on a, on a roof, like it's, it's almost like we should think of it from the lens of like how the Kreslines got built, right? Except it's a, it's a credit to, to infrastructure you don't have to build instead of like, here's the $7 billion we have to spend to get the cheap supply. Like it's like the inverse of it. I don't know if you can like price discover that, you know, like, I guess it's in the hands of utilities. You could say in the Kres example, right? If I'm a CNI customer who installs a battery to lower my coincident peaks, and therefore I put less money into the Kres pool, one way to deal with that would then be everybody else has to pay more. Like the, the total always has to be the same. And we're just like splitting it up based on how much load everybody had. Another way to deal with it would be to say, whoever built that, those lines built too much and it's on them, right? Like in right. this case, it was like <laughs> the government. So that doesn't really work. If the risk were on the utility for underutilized infrastructure to not get paid back, right? <laughs> well then, yeah, just charge me a CP rate and I'll do my best to avoid it. But I'm not sure if that's ever gonna like really fly either. Because then the utility just doesn't want to build shit then, which I totally understand. Why would you? Did you guys see the vibrant clean energy, like Chris Clack Yeah. on Twitter? I wanted to read it before Today. we did this, but mm-hmm. it was basically, you it know, arguing nuts. that, yeah. yeah, like combining electrification and DERS and like coordinating all this with how you build out the grid leads to like lower rates across the board. And then I think like Jesse Jenkins was like pushing back on it because there's like, I think this is going to be the fundamental sort of debate yeah. in the energy world, like for the next decade, two decades, which is like, on the one hand, you're going to have like the utility scale solar bulk power people, like it's more efficient, it's cheaper per unit. And then you're going to have like the DERs people who are like, you can't discredit like the locational or t- like value of this. And there isn't an answer right now. And I think that's okay. It's going to be like really interesting to see how this debate emerges. But I, that, I think that's the question, right? Yeah. Small modular nuclear plus DERs. <laughs> right. <laughs> Done. I, well, I, I think this study is really interesting though, because it, it kind of gets into right what we're talking about, which basically for the first time ever, they integrated a model of the distribution grid into their power system modeling software, which nobody does. Everybody right. just models the bulk grid. And suddenly, then, if you properly co-optimize DERS, you save $500 billion, right? Like, pretty wild, but only because they're behind the distribution grid, right? If you place those same assets on, like, a fictional bulk grid only and ignore the distribution grid as just, like, some fixed cost that's not going to be changed. You know, in previous models that don't consider the distribution grid and constraints and electrification and stuff... It says, eh, DERS aren't that important because it's just like cheaper to build solar in the desert, right? Only when you have to get that grid to that power to people <laughs> do you realize, oh, you can save five. Right, you got it. You got to factor in the seven billion dollar Kres lens, right? So yeah, <laughs> but I just want to ask a clarifying question, like because I knew the study was coming. One thing I was concerned about it is like if you assume the DERS are there, you're basically assuming, like I point out when like a hospital double pays for resilience, like the DERS aren't just there, like private capital gets deployed to do it. So that's like a cost. I think that cost should be included in the system. It does. Yeah. So it's saying that 
kind of all things being held equal. So like private capital going into DERS behind the meter and private capital going into, like you said, just DERS not behind the distribution system. The net like value creation of sense is like $500 billion. Like, so it's not just like dumping that $500 billion onto pr- private markets, right? Like no, 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 it's not like yeah, we okay. saved $500 billion. <laughs> yeah, right, right. No, 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 no. Right. That, that would be some like funny local politician stuff though. Like we saved money. No. Um, <laughs> and, and to be clear, it was in a scenario where like a constraint is a, I think it was a 95% decarbonized grid. So basically it's comparing like a adders versus no ders. But like both are like big renewable storage, like you know, like right. electrification. Like it, it's not like versus just business as usual. Yeah. What I'm so curious about when the like, because I don't think the full technical report is out. It's just sort of the exact summary. The things I didn't see is that I didn't see specifically that how it handles electrification. Which not that I think that's going to like change the outcome per se, but I do think like with heating, like places that are cold where you switch to winter peaking when you have the least amount of solar and we haven't really figured out seasonal storage to me is just like always one of my questions of like how that works from a cost perspective because then you have to like really overbuild your solar so I'm super curious that they dealt with that (laughs) and then I think the other question I have is like how they handled optimization of dirs yeah that's a big question yeah I think those are kind of probably two assumptions that went into it, which for the purposes of this are probably okay. Like I do know too that um, Chris tweeted at some point that they had run the numbers that like electrification leads to a 1.57x build out of the distribution grid. Mm-hmm. So I think they have to be factoring that in somehow. Cause like, that's the other interesting question here that we've gotten into is like, you do need to build more distribution infrastructure to get to that electrification scenario. So at least like, no, they're thinking about it. Yeah. No, I mean, it seems pretty comprehensive. Again, that's also where like the distributed side and becomes the two-way flow becomes so important because it can be dialed up and down in a very different way than the utility scale. Your point on optimization, I think is like, it gets back to everything we're talking about, like programs and rate design. It's like the way these models work is they just find the literal optimal dispatch of everything from like the high level system costs perspective. So it doesn't consider like the market agents incentives, right? It's just like, if I'm the marionette guy, right? Like I have my hands on all the controls. What's the cheapest way to manage the system? And so what it gets at is, I think like what this suggests is like, perhaps there is this $500 billion opportunity to use DERS to like achieve electrification and decarbonization cheaper, but like only if people's incentives lead to that. Right. Like like only if right. we dispatch these assets the right way. Otherwise, we're just going to be like messing around. That's like the true optimal. Like we're probably not going to achieve true optimal ever. Right. Because like, I don't know, CP rate, like things are just crazy. So uh, right. to me, that's like why it's just so important to like align all this stuff correctly. Because otherwise we're going to build DERS that don't do anything. Right. Or don't do much. The other problem with it too is like, you know, something I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, in the the last episode again, where my hypothesis around like utilities are going to impede progress. And the framework I came up with it is that like utilities would love to rate base electrification build out, right? And get their 9% return or whatever. And they're going to do that early on, like, you know, with zeal, right? <laughs> like, they're like, sure, I'll build this infrastructure. Give me my 9%. But at a certain point, 
Like you can't justify a 1.6 or 75x build out of the distribution grid with like a 9% return and spreading that cost across all users. Like I feel like at a certain point, the PSC is going to have to be like, in you know, various cases, like distribution rates are going up way, way too much. So when you look at like combining, you know, the wholesale costs of something with the infrastructure build out, you know, leading to lower rates, that may mean that like, 80% of your rates now are in the infrastructure costs, right? And 20% are in, you know, supply costs, which is actually more like 60, 40 now. And just how like practically this will work on the ground and like projects being proposed, like there may be a really severe breakdown in that process of like a build out in the existing like utility kind of incumbent. They're the only ones who can build infrastructure like sort of framework, right? You know, maybe we should use public money. Like there's a lot of arguments for how we should do electrification distribution grid build out. So I, I what I'm winding up to though is like, Duncan, to your point on co-optimization, like you can't do a distribution grid infrastructure build out for electrification sort of efficiently segmenting it from like the potential that DERs offer by like lessening that build out. But I don't know, like that $500 billion number, like all, you know, talking about incentives and all this other stuff, which is really valid and like why models are always sort of wrong to a certain degree. But what it, what it does point out is like potentially the importance of coupling those two things together, which is like DERS build out and distribution infrastructure build out for electrification. Right. And I think that goes back to like exactly how things are being optimized, what structure is that optimization is happening under, because when forecasting what distribution grid needs there are, we can't just think about, you know, the 1.57x or whatever number, right, is obviously like it, it assumes a lot of optimization. Right. Because presumably the amount of additional load you would need if you took like, you know, max coincident peak across everything you're adding would be like way more than that. And so I think what will be interesting is how those models align with the like information that utilities are getting as they're determining what grid infrastructure build that they need and then what optimization actually ends up happening based on whether things are able to settle to the meter or able to bid into the wholesale market you know as the same way that other utility scale projects do or if they get like they can bid into those markets. Plus there's like their local distribution markets. Maybe they only have access to. I agree with everything you said, but the examples you gave are the short-term costs, right? I know, I love short-term costs. Yeah, no, no, no. Like uh, (laughs) how you incentivize like the the optimization like day-to-day. But what the study, I poked around on like one of their prior studies, it talks about, what is it? Like CEP or something. They have like a term for it. It's like coordinated energy planning or something. Mm -hmm. Saying that like you have to, plan the optimization and the infrastructure build out concurrently. Yeah. Right. And like, so you, like, we don't have like settling to the meter does not to like Duncan's framing solve that long-term cost planning scenario. Like we don't have a framework that works. 2222 does not do it. Right. Like we don't, no, nothing like, does do do? it. There's nothing right. does it right now. Veter does it. Veter does. That's true. It's a big part Points of Veter. Yeah. And you actually get, contracted returns on that stuff and i'm not just saying that in a jokey way because like the idea is like you're kind of like doing a utility-esque job right you're like building grid infrastructure that everybody's going to benefit from and 
Mm-hmm. Here's right. the money you get for that. No, that's that's very real. And it was sort of blessed by the Public Service Commission, just like we would bless a rate case or something. It, it is sort of like a little mini unbundling of franchise rights. Like it's it's kind of like within this domain of like the private property, you know, that a dur lives on, it is a different way of building up the grid. And here's the contracted return you get on that. Or not return, but but revenue. It's still not return because if you build a really expensive dur, you that's right. your problem. So it's still a little less guaranteed, but you know, that's what Veter does. And I think that I don't know. It's an important part of this whole thing. It's maybe an argument against franchise rights, which I concede because like the utility is just like, here's the price you get, you know, <laughs> like, like how else Never you- thought I would live to see the day. <laughs> it does make it a simple incentive way where the utility is just like, here's what you get paid if you build a dirt somewhere. And like, if you don't have franchise rights, they probably wouldn't be able to do that as effectively, right? Like you're just like giving the task to them. And I think in the New York case, it it works. I think at least it's like a, it's a noble experiment. Like we're, we're going to see if it works, you know, right. like that's, that's it true. takes like 10 years to figure out if it works or not. So we've spent a lot of time on kind of like picking apart and comparing and contrasting our 10 years from now, what does the DERS sort of landscape need to look like? So let's talk about FERC 2222. Does this start to get us in any of the directions we've outlined? Like, what does it seem like it's good at? What is it missing? Like, where do we think it's pointing us? Can I just, I mean, it just doesn't say that much. (laughs) Like, like I actually picked through the like actual order and one of the more interesting pieces I found is like something the commission adopted, I guess, is like each RTO or ISO is to revise its tariff as necessary to allow DERs, aggregators, to offer to sell capacity, energy, and ancillary services in ISO markets. Specifically, the commission proposed to require that each ISO revise its tariff to define DER aggregators as a type of market participant that can participate in ISO markets under the participation model that best accommodates the physical and operational characteristics of its DER aggregation. This means that DER aggregator would register as, for example, a generation asset, if that is the partition model that reflects its physical characteristics. So I feel like this has to get rid of net metering, right? Because like, if, if I'm actually a DER aggregator and I want to participate in this example that the commission gives as a generator, I aggregate a bunch of uh, like solar plants up, right? Rooftop solar. And I can bid that in to the ISO for energy, like as a generator. And like net metering is a bundling of distribution benefits and wholesale market, like like it just rolls it all up into one like retail rate. But like what I just read, like it is not like net metering is completely incompatible with that idea. Right. And so I was like trying to bring it up during the meetup. I was like, wait, this like violates NEM. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? But if you're, if, if we're just ancillary services, like you could aggregate and you bid in like DR and frequency reg and stuff like that. But it specifically like repeatedly calls about capacity and energy. No, I think it's interesting. I mean, I think the first thing to establish though, is that like NEM is just rate design. So like whether aggregating and bidding DERs into wholesale markets for capacity, energy, and ancillary services conflicts with NEM or not, 
is really just asking, does it conflict with rate design or not, right? Just because even if you're producing solar and not exporting, it's still the same thing, right? Like if I'm reducing my end user's energy costs at the same time, I'm like generating revenues in the wholesale market for the same exact action, like there's conflict there. And whether it's NEM or whether it's just avoided utility cost analysis, like same thing, I think. You're right. Like I think actually what bothers me about NEM and VDER is what's happening is there's still this like shadow settlement of physical power markets only mediated through the utility. Meaning like if we were in Texas and like I'm a retailer and dealing with a solar customer, like I would, I would pay for their supply when they're exporting and then like sell that back to other people in my book and then charge them when they are you know, in real time, like when they're using, you know, in the morning or at night when there's no solar. Effectively, that's what the utility is doing with NEM, like say in PSE and G, they actually say if you overproduce, like at the end of the year, you've done like 105% consumption over 100. For that 5%, you know, 105% export to- On the extra. They give you the LBMP rate on the extra, right? And so like, why can't we, why can't we do that? Like, as, as a retailer, like it's a, it's a bunch of bullshit. Like that is what I mean by uh, segmenting the distribution cost from like the LBMP because like what they're actually doing is spreading that out amongst all of their utility rate customers and those customers can't opt in or out of that, which right. I don't think is fair. So I don't necessarily disagree, although I would maybe argue with the idea that utilities want them. That's interesting. Yeah, utilities don't really necessarily love NEM. No, I think that's like something that customers love. And I think at the time when NEM was created, right, utilities didn't really see it as an issue because it was so small. Yeah. So what I would imagine is that as ISOs start to create and come out with these regulations, states will start to revisit NEM again. Right. Because I agree that they're in conflict and that it's essentially double dipping, but they're very separate structures because one's a rate structure and one's a wholesale market structure. But once the wholesale market structure has changed, I think you'll see a push into like, like how should these systems be valued? And that's where you might start to see like, you know, I think your ideal take James would be there's one market for everything. But I think what you might see is like a sub veter that sort of deals with all the distribution level benefits but maybe doesn't deal with the wholesale market benefits right. because it's like, okay, that's happening elsewhere. So now we're going to strip that out. No, that would be, that would be ideal. Like that's what I think it should be. If we're thinking of like, how will this phase in, right? Let's say two to three years for ISOs to get their act together and figure out what this means. <laughs> um, Cause I think they have until like next year to come up with like an initial proposal and then it has to get implemented and integrated. Right. And then another couple of years for rate redesign. And so within our 10 year vision, <laughs> I think that this could get us there because I think it's inevitable that once you have that market rate design, commissions will start to revisit right. what NEM looks like in states. Yeah. So like with Vitor, right? Like once we said all these things, then we also said like, look, if we're going to do that, like we can't give you like NEM export credits anymore. Like they're in conflict. So I think we sort of took the easy way and we just made Vitor like replace NEM exports still doesn't apply to aggregations of behind the meter assets, just offsetting load. But yeah, so so I'm agreeing with you basically. Yeah. I think like it starts to happen once you kind of like consider these things sincerely. I totally agree as well. Cause 
I think you can reframe them and Vitor too, by the way, like Vitor, I can't take that physical supply obligation from a community solar plant to the ISO, like, you know, where you can like take a, like have it participate like a generator, right? Like it's, it's actually just running through like the utilities Mm -hmm. accounting system. Like I can't take that meter and be like, okay, this is my obligation now to the meter, which like affects how the market works essentially. Remote net metering basically. (laughs) Right. And so like net metering is FERC order 2222, where the only aggregator that can participate in wholesale markets is the utility. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Net metering can continue to exist in like this idealized world. Like we may even come up with it, our own version of it as a retailer. Like that's where we want to get to. And I, I think it would like result in a more efficient, uh, like you can include the optimization and all this stuff like as part of that, but any aggregator can do it. And so it, it has to violate NEM because if aggregators are allowed to bid in energy supply of aggregated assets, they have to have the ability to like take on that physical obligation, which is only in the hands of the utility right now, whether that's Vitor or NEM. Is that really the case though? Like, I don't think it contemplates like what happens with avoided utility costs in NEM, right? Like it's just like, take the Sunrun example in New England ISO, right? And I actually don't know whether they're making energy revenues or capacity met revenues or what, but like, None of it considers what's happening with the customer's bill anyway, right? So like Sunrun has some physical obligation to deliver power, whether it's because they're getting a capacity payment or because they bid into the, you know, hourly, hour ahead markets or whatever. And if they don't fulfill that obligation, that's their problem. But like, it doesn't affect their customer in any way. Like they're, they're wholly separate things. Right. They're so getting that- a capacity payment. That's okay. the yeah. that's the issue though, right? Because then if it's behind customer meters and they're getting a capacity payment, like it's probably also affecting that customer's ICAP tags. They're all resi. They don't they don't have ICAP tags. Well, I mean, what's actually happening is that's like all those accounts are bundled into some whoever's obligated for those accounts, like to some capacity obligation to the market. And then that's now segmented away from like the capacity payment they're getting from the market. So let me put it another way. Like we as a retailer, right? When we're serving load, we get like line items from the ISO, right? Like your capacity payments, your energy, your like every, you know, there's like 20 of them. Right. And then we charge the customer a fixed rate to like recover all those costs. And like we handle all the accounting and billing and stuff. When the customer is exporting, you can just credit the energy they're selling out into the market against those line items as you can credit, like if the capacity is, you know, one, on one hand, their capacity tag may go down to zero. On another hand, if they had a 1.5 megawatt battery on a one megawatt peak load system, you could bid the, the other 500 KW above their capacity like usage into the market and then credit that against the whatever charges we're getting from the ISO, but that's not what these capacity payments are doing. Correct. Like by not exposing that resi account, like whatever their capacity tag is, someone has that capacity obligation. They paid into the market and then the market just like pays out the capacity payment for the battery to some other party, right? Like, so this all should be on bill. Like that's what the load. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's how you value imports and exports the right way. Interestingly, yeah, in old school demand response, which is exactly what we're talking about, 
with capacity, right? Like mm -hmm. if a curtailment services provider, an aggregator, you know, dispatches their DERs to make capacity money in the wholesale market, they actually add that back into the customer's capacity tag to make sure they're not getting credit for it on their bill as well, right? <laughs> so like you give money around the bill to the aggregator and then you push it back into the bill uh, so that it's not double counting. It's uh, so like, dumb. Like that's how DR works. So it, well, like, I think that's where 2222 is headed with energy and ancillary services. I mean, no customer, you know, has ancillary services reflected on their bill. But with energy, like, I, that's what I don't understand about 2222 still, which is just like, if Sunrun dispatches these batteries for energy revenues, like, are we just going to let the customer also save money from that and basically have like one action produce two sets of revenues? Right. The energy side or like, is interesting. Are we going to do the add it back in thing like we do with capacity DR? I, I don't know. Yeah. I hadn't thought through the energy side, but I agree. It, it kind of makes my, my head hurt a little bit. Which does, which does support James's point, which is yeah. just like, if it's just all on the damn bill, like then like you let the customer deal with it or the retailer deal with it or whoever the fuck wants to deal with it, deal with it. But like, it's all reconciled in one place. Yeah, Vitor is the is that future, except I as a retailer cannot take the physical obligation because it's settled through the utility. Like all you have to do is pull the financial settlement out of the utility for the LBMP and capacity components. What's happening is like power's flowing into their system and they have some supply obligation to the market like that they have to pay for and capacity and they're like offsetting it against their whole book basically you can only leverage it into their book so if everybody starts using a rep let's say everybody in new york city uses a rep mm -hmm. cni and resi is Vitor dead because <laughs> the utility has nothing to to use it against net like their book is non-existent they have no book yeah that's interesting yeah, it may, maybe you're right because like this all it it all gets paid back to the customer via credits instead of just like line item charges from 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 the ISO that like I as a retailer yeah. have access to. So in that sense, it is like kind of like net metering. Like we're changing up the mechanisms, but like it's it's just remote net metering basically. Yeah, it's like all the signals are there, but the physical and the financial are separate. It's only financially settled through the utility. They're the only aggregator, but I want to be an aggregator. I think I could do it a lot better than them. I think it'd be great for customers. So like, just give me the financial and the physical obligation and like, we could figure it out. That's the only thing missing in New York and, and settling to the meter, like, cause you need the load information too. Yeah. I'm going to be perfectly honest. This like the payment components, like the financial settlement components of all of these I'm still trying to wrap my head around. So I don't have like a particularly good concept here of like what I think is important. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I got a little lost. Like I don't really quite grasp it either. Just trust me, Duncan. And call him. <laughs> yeah, let me just I swear, I swear. says the, says <laughs> the rep. Says the rep is like, just trust me. The rep is the best option. Sounds like it's like Enron to California. Like just trust yeah. us. Like we're <laughs> We're cool. Sounds like a good um, trade. Door to door, door to door energy supply salesman. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's better. Just sign here. No, but I, I mean, I think that's that's what has to happen. If you. if you yeah. can be an aggregator bidding in supply, you have to pull that settlement out of the only the utilities' hands. The settlement specifically of what's in the wholesale markets, as opposed to like yeah, right. not the distribution. No, the DSO. Yeah. Like that's what that was my first. I said like two things, right? Like well, you one, want to combine it all, right? 
No, no, no. Like I, what Vitor does great is that you have a line item for DSRV that's like infrastructure long-term planning shit that Duncan talks about. And then you have LBMP, which is separate. Like that's amazing. That's like 90% of the way there. But the LBMP component can only be recovered through like the utilities accounting system. And I'm like, just let us, you know, actually just make that part of like normal wholesale market operations, not this like weird shadow settlement of it. And I think for 2222 is going to do that. Right. So I think it's like 95% of the way there, but I, I'm going to be able to be like, no, 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 I, I'm doing this community solar and I can bid it into the ISO, not just you, Con Ed. Like that's kind of I think that's hope. probably how it's going to happen. Yeah. I don't think right. it's going to be, I think the structure now is largely because those resources can't bid into the wholesale markets. And so how would you right. do it now? So now that they have like at least all the cost line items, right? <laughs> like now, now they can like settle them and do the accounting through the proper like ISO channels, I guess. I agree that a non-utility is going to be able to be the aggregator and deal with settlement and all that stuff and take the responsibility. That doesn't mean it's going to be through the rep though, right? Like we still have this fundamental issue of like, we're not taking the bold step to align rate design and programs and wholesale markets, whatever. Well, so that that's what I was going to say next. Which is why <laughs> I've said like, I still think this is basically DR 2.0. No, no, no. I think once you let like this happen through a retailer, I'm not saying it only will. Like the utility can do it and the, the rep can do it, right? Like you don't need economic DR anymore. Like I think DR goes sure. away. Yeah. When I originally started the episode, I'm like, you don't even need all the device information. You just need the the meter, like when it's importing and when it's exporting. Because like what economic DR is, like in PJM, when they pay out like the LBMP, that's just the call option. You know what I mean? Like that's just the option value in that one discrete moment. But you do that through like arbitrage anyways, right? Like, so you don't actually need that as a function. It's just segmenting out that payment from like the on-bill stuff. Like, so you could totally do it on bill. It's also creating the more granular level. Like you need more granular than just LBMP for DR. You need like network level because a lot of times DR is called on a network. Oh yeah. Yeah, we're... He's right. referring well, to like ISO DR. Like yeah, ISO PJM DR. DR. So like Con Ed DR can totally still exist. And I don't think that's double dipping. That's emergency DR, which is like our system is constrained. Like we can't flow any more shit through the pipes, right? Not like we have a supply shortage. Those are right. two different things. And you have yeah. two different DRs. I think the DR that relates to supply constraints doesn't need to exist. So and I, I think the reason I got confused too, maybe, is that I think eventually the way that Vitor in theory, should function and like other markets should function on the distribution side is like, if you move to a sort of like time of use locational pricing option, utility level DR goes into that distribution level as well. Because as system emergencies happen, you get price spikes, right? So there is like ideal DR optimization you're getting rid of. DR is getting subsumed into how we think about rates. Right. But like, couldn't it also just be in like the DSRV value? Like maybe you need it in like a spot, like you need an incentive for like, no, the system's constrained right now. Like, we'll Yeah, I think you, you but... need that. <laughs> I think you need like, this substation broke, <laughs> turn off your heat cooling. <laughs> right. But to your point, like technically DSRV is, is like part and parcel with that DR program. And then there's a DR program that's like LBMP capacity and like wholesale stuff, right? So... So help me understand in a in a in an environment like PJM where you have economic DR where aggregated DERs can bid against LMPs 
in this like around the bill fashion. What does FERC 222 do for the rep who wants to be the one to do that? Like, how does it change anything? Because like, can't they just do that now? I don't think that changes anything on that front. It doesn't. I think not needing DR would be emergent from like the other problems being solved. Because like one thing I've thought about is, you know, how people do rev share with DR is like, we could also offer like even to scale microgrids be like, you actually get no DR revenue, right? Like we're just going to keep all of that because it's like the option payment out of like the LBMP for being called upon when like prices are going up or whatever. So we would offer like a ridiculously low rate because we're just like including the DR payments within the- all. Yeah. yeah, So like you can segment that out and like take a rev share on it, or you can just like fold it in. I don't think it's materially different. So like maybe there's not a need for it eventually, but I I don't think like 2222 addresses that because you can kind of actually, if you wanted to, you could do it now, like go up to a customer and be like, you're paying 90 cents a kilowatt hour. You're going to pay like 60, but I get all the DR payments and just like do the math on the back end. It's the same thing. Okay. So conclusion is quad deuces just i i just don't know where like i and i guess it just ends up being like highly market specific like depending on kind of like where a given iso is and all this stuff but like my view coming out of this is like we've discussed our 10-year you know idealized dr market conditions um and while we disagree on them like i think we get each other's points and like have kind of like understanding there i i really just don't know if two 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 like gets us there or not like i'm just kind of lost to be perfectly honest like it seems like it could go in so many directions depending on who interprets it and enforces it and creates rules with it like i I don't know (laughs) i I, i'm almost like more lost than i began with like is this watershed (laughs) maybe like (laughs) i don't know i it's gonna start a lot of conversation optimistic i'm kind of like yeah let's see i guess Yeah, my take is it's going to start a lot of conversations because people are going to have to wrap their heads around this. And I think as we're learning in this episode, it's not easy to wrap your head around this because it is really tied, I think, to James's point and Duncan, to your point too, like around the structures we've built to date in rate design. So like it's going to force a reckoning, I think, with with NEM and with other rate designs and that in itself could be pretty landmark i agree with both both of you (laughs) like i think we're actually very much agreed on the rate design part like it is going to force a lot of things in that direction it's landmark in that sense but like duncan where i agree with you that i think what you're befuddled on is actually like this kind of longer conversation we had about like co-optimization and like co-planning of distribution infrastructure and supply and like co-location, all this like wonky stuff. That's what's actually really confusing about it. But what rate design does is it forces a segmentation of like say DSRV, Inviter and LBMP. So like it it forces the utilities to, when you're addressing rate design, you're, you're handling like the wholesale piece which means if you're pulling the wholesale like rate piece out of this all-in-one cost that we have, you're also concurrently addressing the like, well, what's the avoided distribution cost? Which ironically, mm-hmm. like if you think back to Purpa, like all it was was like it wasn't even um, a wholesale market. 
it was like very durs in the sense that it was like, just like you can calculate the avoided cost of the utility and then they like have to pay you that rate. So like obviously yeah. at that time, yeah. it probably included some element of like distribution and transmission. So like what yeah. DSRV payments to me are, are avoided distribution cost payments. Yeah, yeah. So like, I don't know, maybe I'm kind of long 2222 after this conversation, like halfway through being like, wow, everything sucks. But like, <laughs> but like that's like probably I, what they I, said about Purple when it came out. Right. Yeah. It's like, what the say, fuck yeah, is like, this? But like, it'll all People were probably very, out. yeah. But no, yeah, I think it's a really good point. Like it, it forces something to happen. Right. Uh, and like, that's probably good because like, it's like directionally going to be correct, even if right. it's not like exactly what you want or not. Yeah. And Colleen's point, like market to market, it'll be wildly different and all these different, but like a few, like one or two, maybe three like models were, will emerge. Like we wound up with like capacity markets or energy markets from deregulation or like vertically integrated, like the Southeast or whatever. I don't know. I'm pretty optimistic. One thing I think 2222 is definitely missing that we've like, this is, we haven't discussed this at all. Is like, right, PERPA was before wholesale markets, right? Yeah. So it was in the vertically integrated utility world. And it was just like, you got to pay these generators. 2222, now in the world of wholesale energy markets, does not address the remaining vertically integrated utilities. So in the vertically integrated world, like wouldn't a better 222 say, okay, if you're vertically integrated and you don't have a wholesale market, this is PERPA for DERS. Like you got to give the smart water heater your avoided cost when it dispatches. Do vertically integrated territories have PERPA? They yeah, do, right? I, yeah, I yeah. To... I mean, oh, interesting. Because post deregulation, like PERPA still exists in like <laughs> PSE and G. But they're just like, yeah, the avoided cost is the LMP. Here you go. Right. Like it's it's just like not interesting anymore. <laughs> right. Right. Like, but yeah, like if you got a bunch of DERs in Southern Company territory, like it's a shame this doesn't help you because like that's where they really need it. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like we're like boldly stepping into the future, but like in the part of the country that never took the first step, like they're just still. <laughs> hanging out in that world right. I, I don't know it's it's weird to think well about that. like in those territories they can just do universal basic energy and like rate base <laughs> a bunch of solar enters right like i'm just gonna go become ceo of southern companies yes I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd i'd vote for you but i guess you'd be like a dictator or something i don't know if that's a vote thing but <laughs> i have a crazy idea to end on which I thought of uh, yesterday. The ideal grid by makeup of power sources is a shit ton of local DERS and like lots of local resilience, like, you know, all the stuff we've been talking about. And then bulk power is like all is like 40% nuclear. That's cool. I'm into that. I feel like that reduces the need for DERS, but I'm down. No, because you still like seasonal peaks, like through EV charging okay, and heat, okay. heat and yeah. like AC and the resilient and side and yeah. So you like ba you like baseload the shit out of uh... and let the DERS be all the flexible stuff. Like exactly, yeah. yeah. I still think it's less DERS than on a like VRE heavy grid, but maybe that makes more sense. Yeah, I know. I'm just trying to figure out how to like get nuclear people and renewable people like singing kumbaya. <laughs> yeah we need to get the nuclear people on the on the clean energy side and not like the i just want to be on one of isabel's tiktoks because <laughs> those are dope 
Those are fun. That's the best <laughs> energy content out there for sure. Yeah, I've often thought like the future grid mix is like just like bucket loads of super cheap wind and solar on the utility scale. And then like all the like flexibility value happening behind the distribution grid. Yeah. So just like dumping cheap bulk power into the system and then like dealing with it at the grid edge. That's what that's kind of like where I've I still think you think need like 30, 40% base load. Probably. Yeah. No, which I, like I, yeah, I, it should be nuclear and hydro and not gas, right? Like Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What will be really interesting is like, is it easier to build like transmission across the country or nuclear? Because you need one of them. Well, what I was going to say <laughs> is instead of like high voltage DC everywhere to like Minnesota, like just build nuclear in like cold places with like no nuclear sun. as a non wires alternative. Yes. <laughs> SMRs for the win. All right, DR Task Force, that's the end of season one of our podcast. We had so much fun bringing the show to you this year. Truly a bright spot of 2020 for us, and we can't wait to see what 2021 holds. While you wait for season two, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode and where you think the markets will lead in the next decade. Will we have universal basic energy, energy-only markets, capacity-only markets? Give us your predictions, tell us why we're wrong, and let us know what you're looking to see in season two. You can find us on Twitter at DR underscore task underscore force or join our Slack at drtaskforce.com. And don't miss out on our January heat pump focus meetup. It's been great, y'all. DR Task Force out.